Okay, it's 9.20, let's go ahead and get started. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that we can take this time now to study your word. We ask for your spirit that we would understand and that we would be changed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Just to let you know, the next two weeks, I'll be on vacation, Lord willing, and I've asked Dave Douglas to fill in. Uh, And I don't know what he's going to do. I said you could do something from Deuteronomy or you could do whatever. And so he's going to fill in just so we continue to have some kind of class. And so uh, uh, so Dave will be here, Lord willing, the 3rd and the 10th. And uh, I'm sure he will uh, bring something interesting. Let's do just a quick recap then. Um, We looked at the giants last time. Hopefully that was interesting to you. And on the ultimate theological point of the giants... Beyond the, you know, curiosity that we have and, you know, um, and questions about different findings and archaeological and paleontology type stuff, um, there's a theological purpose of God pointing out the giants in the land, and that was to direct Israel's hope to be only in God, because you can't take this land. Here's why. There are these giant beings that you cannot defeat. And, um, and so theologically, this, this great challenge becomes a means by which Israel would believe in God more because they couldn't believe in themselves. And if they believe in God more, they will defeat the giants. I mean, you can just see how God in his wisdom takes the impossible and makes it a reason for faith. Um, and that faith then will bring, you know, get the victory. And in a certain sense, we could say the same thing with Sarah. Uh, it wasn't until after she's in menopause that, you know, she gets the word, but that's so that she would believe completely in God. I mean, there's a sense in which, yes, most women can have children. You don't need a miracle from God for that. Sarah did. But her child was to be miraculous. And so it had to be that way that she would, she would know that her body could not get pregnant. Now she's ready to get the word so that it would only be uh, by gl- God's glory that she would conceive. And I see the same thing. It would only be by God's strength that they could possibly take the land. And so God is teaching them and teaching the whole church, really, you know, that it's by faith that we know God. By faith, we have the blessings of God, the promises of God. And so that's part of the, um, of the purpose of the giants. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself. There it is, right? Can't do it. Cities great and fortified up to heaven, obviously hyperbole, but still their walls were impressive in that day. A people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? That was the common proverb of the day. Nobody can defeat Anak. And so uh, God's reminding them of that as they're going into the land. And therefore, Deuteronomy 9, verse 3, Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will bring them down before you. So you still have to go. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said to you. So God would give them the grace Um, to uh, believe and they would believe and go in and as they went in, they would win. So how God did that, we don't get the exact details. You know, was it that certain warriors would be able to defeat the giants? Would God cause the giant to stumble and fall in a hand-to-hand combat contest? All God says is go and fight and I'll make sure you win. And so they did. And the details, again, for the most part, were not given. And so in the grace of God, the invincibility of the giants becomes a major motivation to trust in God. We have to trust in God. How else can we defeat the giants? Um, And so there's no room for pride. And that's part of of God's teaching of his people here. Deuteronomy 9.4, do not think it in your heart. After the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Because they've gotten so wicked. Remember, God gave them an extra 400 years. They are so wicked now that God is driving them out. But it has nothing to do with Israel's righteousness. We never earn anything from God. But God can bring judgments upon people who do Uh, in that sense, earn those judgments by filling up 
um, the cup of iniquity to the point where even God's patience comes to an end. And 400 more years is what the Amorites needed to, to fill up that cup. We're going to see some of that a little bit, Lord willing, in the uh, sermon later today. There's a particular phrase, you'll see it used multiple times in Scripture, where people fill up their sins before the Lord. They get to the point where God, even as patient and as long-suffering as he is, he's now going to act and judge. You know, Noah's time, Sodom and Gomorrah, which is what's coming closer in our text and in the sermon series. Um, And that's what has happened here in the land as well. But again, the reminder is, it's not because you're so good. It's because they were so bad that now I'm causing them to be destroyed. It's interesting to me that Jesus does something similar to the um, letters to the seven churches. Remember when we were looking at Revelation? In almost every one of the seven churches, there was a command to repent from specific sins. If you don't repent, I will do the following. And bring some kind of limited judgment that would be difficult for them. And it wasn't that by repenting, they you know, were so good that God earned, or they earned before God a blessing. No, but by stopping the bad behavior, they at least stopped earning a particular judgment from God. And so that is something that we can do. Uh, we can you know, avoid particular sins that are so bad that God is going to bring judgment. But that's not earning anything by your righteousness. That's just not meriting further judgment from God. So the emphasis is on the... The sinfulness of the people. Again, Deuteronomy 9, 6. Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this land to possess because of your righteousness. How many times does God say that in Deuteronomy? For you are a stiff-necked people. And God uh, even gives them that historical proof that we've been looking at in the previous chapters. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you departed the, the land of Egypt until... You came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How about that? So it's 40 years, you know, they're, they're about to go into the land, 40 years, and God reminds them, from the day I took you out of Egypt until now, you've been rebellious. Don't think you're getting the land because you've been good. Oh, you've improved. Uh, on the contrary, you've rebelled the entire time. And then the rest of chapter 9 uh, chronicles Israel's most serious rebellions against the Lord. And again, so God's really painstakingly reminding them in the book of Deuteronomy how they deserve to be destroyed multiple times. You know, the golden calf, and then Merah, and then the serpents, and multiple times I should have destroyed you. And so don't think you're getting anything because you are better than anyone else. And so the point is, is to keep foremost in their minds and in their hearts that all that God is giving to them is by his grace. They haven't earned a single acre. They haven't earned a square foot of the land. Uh, And it's the wicked and the natives of the land who are getting what they deserve, justice. Israel's receiving mercy. Israel's receiving grace. So um, that takes us back to chapter 3. And I want you to turn there. In your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 3. I really would have loved to have been able to put together a series or a a lecture today on the justice of God in Deuteronomy, which will probably be more than one lecture because I'm going to be looking at the justice of God in the sermon. And it would have been fitting. And the word justice appears so often in Deuteronomy. But uh, I wasn't able to to pull that off because that's, that's a lot of... I'll have a couple of weeks, Lord willing, to get ready for that. So Dave, I've already announced, next two weeks you'll be taken over, so I'm just reminding that since you're here. <laughs> All right, so let's get into Deuteronomy 3. In the providential goodness of God to Israel, war and the giants, two things that you don't want to have to face, right? But both of those things become a great occasion to have faith in God. Go to war because I'm giving it to you by war. Take on the giants. You can't defeat them, but I will if you believe in me. And so the great mission contemplated in Deuteronomy is war. Israel's on the verge of holy war to conquer the promised land. And we've looked at the difference between the holy war that they would do in a limited, in a one-time only, wipe out all the peoples of this land, and then after that, the war is where they go and offer peace. And complete peace to, to cities. And so, uh, but go, they're on the verge of doing this. And, um, uh, and so God gives his word to Israel with the purpose of preparing them for war, which is by faith, 
that as they believe in him, they will conquer the land. If they don't believe, they won't conquer the land. That was the purpose, remember earlier, for, you know, if anyone is fearful, let him go home. He doesn't have to fight in the war, which is interesting. And I didn't, I'm, I'm going to do more on that um, because ordinarily that would be a fault, right? I mean, in fact, you know, if a soldier is cowardly, I mean, he can be court-martialed, he can be whatever, the, the shame of the community comes upon him, but God is showing Israel that not everybody is called to fight. And uh, some men might be called to do something else, and therefore, if they're fearful, tell, tell them to leave the army. Go do something else with, with no uh, demerits upon them, no, no condemnation or anything, because God wasn't going to do it by numbers. He was going to do it by faith, and those who were fearful weren't believing, and the faith only comes from God, and so those soldiers that he gave faith to would fight, and those who didn't were, were to be sent to do something else. But again, we'll come back to that. So Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 21. And I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms through which you pass. pass. So we know these two kings that they've already defeated is now, they are, they are now an example of what God will do, an, an example for faith to believe in. Look what God did before. God's going to do it again. And Joshua is mentioned multiple times in the book because part of Deuteronomy is the passing of the baton from Moses to Joshua. So it's, it's Moses' last will and testament, but it's also, you know, trust in Joshua because Moses has commended him. God is going to bless him as he blessed Moses. And so that's part of it too, because only as they believe in God under the leadership of Joshua will they be able to take the land. So we get these times commending Joshua here and there. Uh, verse 22, you must not fear them for the Lord your God himself fights for you. See the same thing in verse 28, God, uh, but command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him for he shall go over before this people and he will cause them to inherit the land which you will see. And again, not by his might or power, but because God is with him. And if God is with him, then you can believe and you can follow him. But God is going to fight for them. God fights for them. They can't look to their own ability, their own righteousness, their own deserving. And yet they have to go in and fight. Even though God will fight, you have to go in and fight. And then they'll win as they believe not in themselves, but in God. All right. And uh, in Genesis chapter 12, or sorry, chapter 3, verses 12 to 17, we saw that, that where God gave them land east of the Jordan. Remember, that was extra. That was never part, at least at the beginning. The, the promised land was going to be west of the Jordan. But then when Israel prays that God would give them the, these lands, when they, when they go to Moses and they beseech Moses, you know, let the Lord have, give us this. God adds to it. I mean, here's a, you know, again, in the providence of God, obviously, you know, in his divine decree, he wasn't changing anything. But in the working out in time, it was through their prayers as a secondary cause that the promised land is actually extended. That's a wonderful thing to think about, that we can pray to God and ask him to bless and even beyond. Uh, and he does. And suddenly the promised land now includes this land on the east of the Jordan for Reuben, for Gad and for the half-tribe of Manasseh. And yet, their men have to cross over and fight until they all have their inheritance. And that was the point of verses 18 to 20. And here we see an example of the unity of, of Israel, the unity of the church, the unity of the people of God, their love for one another. No one is to enjoy his inheritance until everybody gets it. All right? And so, again, Israel is a type of the church entering the promised land uh, the, the saints caring for one another, serving one another uh, in this unique situation of war. And yet the same thing that God is blessing them with these good things, but they have to all work together uh, and get their inheritance before any of them are allowed to enjoy it. The, the women and the children continue to live in the land while they are at war and their cattle continue to live in the land. And we saw this last time. The purpose of war is peace. If somebody just is ready to get married, he's excluded. Somebody just bought a field, he gets to go enjoy it. Somebody just plants a vineyard, he gets to go enjoy it. They get to leave the army. There's never been anything more gracious like than this in the history of the world. People get to go and enjoy life before they have to fight because it's not numbers, it's not your strength. The purpose of the battle is that you could dwell in peace and glorify God in the land that he's giving you and therefore the purpose has to continue while the war is going on, people have to be able to live in peace and enjoy the good land. 
because that's why you're fighting. And so that's not going to super, if war ever gets to the point where no one can enjoy God's blessing, then the war isn't worth it anymore. The war is because God's going to bless them with peace and prosperity. And so that, that happens, you know, uh, wow, you know, a newlywed couple, they get to go spend time together. He doesn't have to go to war. He gets to enjoy uh, life with his new wife before he has to go and fight. Or even things like, you know, again, buying a field, planting a vineyard. Who's going to be excluded from military service for that? I could see that, you know, during the Vietnam era. I just planted a vineyard, so, you know, Bible says I get to go enjoy it. Uh, I mean, guys were going to Canada to try to get out of that war. And if you weren't a senator's son, you were going to go to war in a place where the government wouldn't let you win. So uh, Israel's greatly humane laws for war, so much greater than ours. That's what I wanted been, have been trying to show you, the criticism, you know, that God was this bloodthirsty, warring God, when it's so much more humane and merciful than anything that we see even to this day. All right. So no one enjoys their inheritance till they all have it. Women and children get to uh, in, continue to be in the land. Um, and then we get God's stern rejection of Moses. And, and you could just... This happens repeatedly in the book of Deuteronomy. We get reminded that Moses is not going to be allowed to enter the land. Verses 23 to 27. Then at that time I pleaded with the Lord, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. They're finally now winning battles. They defeat Og, right? Uh, And and, uh, um, Bashan and some of the other peoples, the Malachites, when they attack, they begin to defeat them. You've begun to show your servant, your great and mighty hand, for what God is there in heaven or in the earth who can do anything like you, your works and your mighty deeds. I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account. Notice that, on your account. And would not listen to me. So that the Lord said to me, enough of this matter. Speak no more to me of this matter. Enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. That's an interesting response, you know, of God. And don't look at it as God sort of being abrupt and losing his temper, which is absurd and even blasphemous. Um, But what is God saying to Moses? Moses is such an effective intercessor. This is the way I see it. God says no more. You're not going to ask for this anymore, right? Um, because Moses' prayers are, are granted. And God's determined not to grant this, and so God tells him to stop asking. And this is God showing the effectiveness of Moses. It's not God um, losing his temper, as it were. Speak no more. But then, then notice this. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift your eyes toward the west, the north, the south, and the east. Behold it with your eyes. So God does give him something, doesn't he? For you shall not cross over this Jordan, but command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him. For he shall go over. Again, they're building the resume of Joshua for the people. For he shall go over before this people and he shall cause them to inherit the land which you see. So we stayed in the valley opposite Beth Peor. So they don't, that doesn't happen at this point. Moses is telling them what God has told him to do. When it's time, he will go up and he will see the land. But he doesn't do it yet. It doesn't do it. In fact, until the very end, if you look at the end of Deuteronomy, the last part of the book that we know, I mean, you know, I presented to you the traditional view that Moses did write Deuteronomy, except for the last part where it records his death. And you see that in Deuteronomy 34, where it says, so the very last thing, the very last thing Moses does on the earth is he sees the promised land. So God really does give him, I mean, after that, there was really nothing more to look forward to in this world because he knows he can't enter. So God gives him sort of the, the pinnacle of his life, and then he takes him to a better place, you know, than the promised land. He takes him home. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, so I'm reading from Deuteronomy 34, to the top of Pisgah, that's what we just read, which is across from Jericho, so they're on the other side of the Jordan. Remember, Jericho is the first place they got a defeat. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, so that's way up in the north, all of Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all of the land of Judah, Judah to the south, as far as the western sea to the Mediterranean. It seems to me that he gets sort of a supernatural 
vision here, that this is more than you could see with the naked eye standing on some mountain east of the Jordan. It seems to me that God sort of, I don't know, telescopes, you know, causes Moses to see the land, all of it. Because that's what you're, you just got a description of the whole promised land. Um, the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, as far as the palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. And then, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, the last thing God shows him, the promised land. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. Did you catch who buried Moses? God buried Moses. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. In other words, he didn't die of natural causes. Well, he went up on the mountain because he was old. He was as vigorous as he had been. Uh, and again, supernatural, really, at that time. At that time, people were not living that long. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days so the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Then Joshua, son of Nun, full of the spirit and wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so you get, again, that resume that um, God had put before. So God lets him see it. It would be his last thing on the earth. And then we get the uniqueness of Moses for two main reasons in Deuteronomy 34. And that's beginning in verse 10. But since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So nobody like Moses has risen in what way? Whom the Lord knew face to face, one. And in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh and before all his servants and in all the land. And by all that mighty power and all that great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. So the two unique things about Moses, nobody was ever as close to God as Moses and nobody did the miracles that Moses did. So, you know, you can see what I'm anticipating when Moses says a prophet like me will arise. What were the two ways in which Moses was unique? The intimacy and the power. What does Jesus do? My father. Nobody calls God father. You know, the intimacy and the power. Nobody did the miracles that Jesus did. So Moses predicts a greater, you know, than Joshua. And, of course, Joshua's name is Yeshua, which is Jesus. So there's a lot of good stuff in Deuteronomy. Um, and so this is uh, the assurance of a success, the handing off of the baton. After Joshua, interestingly, and after all the elders that lived during Joshua's time, things go downhill for Israel. As we know, the book of Judges is one of the most depressing books uh, in the Bible where you just get, you know, this what's been called a downward spiral of, you know, um, sin, judgment, cry out to God, deliverer, greater sin, greater judgment, cry out to God, shorter time of deliverance, greater sin, greater judgment, cry out to God. It just happens over and over and over again. And the repeated refrain of judgment uh, of, the, of the book of Judges is, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was uh, a kind of anarchy where people did what they thought was right, and it resulted in the repeated cycle of judgments. So um, uh, at this point, then, I want us to jump into chapter 4, and we'll see how far we get in Judges chapter 4. In Judges chapter 4 and 5, Something unique is happening. So we're going to get the emphasis on God's word and God's judgments. Judges chapter 4 is a long chapter. Um, and then Judges chapter 5 is the only other place in the Bible other than Exodus 20 where we get the full revelation of the Ten Commandments. Um, and so Judges, or Deuteronomy 4 and 5 is, uh, is, is very, it's, it's kind of a, a, a minor climax of the book because Part of the climax of Israel um, getting delivered from Egypt was Mount Sinai. That they would go to the mountain that God had called and God would make his covenant with them. And that's what he does on Mount Sinai. And the summary of the covenant is the Ten Commandments. Where God brings the commandments to them. 
and makes them a people. Not only gives them those commandments, which are the moral law, which was already given, as it were, in the garden, but then he gives them the ceremonial law, the civil law. He makes them a nation, you know, at Sinai. So that's a... um, Again, a minor climax of the, of the reason for Israel's uh, forming, that they would be a nation, but then that they have to have land. And so that's the second one, the, the building up of them to where they can go take the land. Of course, ultimately, what would the goal of that be? That they could live righteously for God and glorify him in the land. And even beyond that, that they would be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? Well, they intercede for others. That the, the land would really be a starting point to something bigger because Abraham was the father of many nations. Uh, sorry. <clears throat> so let's jump into chapter four. And here I'm calling the importance of the law. Verses one and two. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, observe that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord your God... the the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. So think about that in terms of what we just said with regard to earning God's judgments by great wickedness that the Amorites had done over 400 years, that Sodom and Gomorrah did, that the world of Noah did, and that God is telling Israel not to do. And you'll understand this passage rightly. If you understand it, oh, they listen to the statutes and judgments and they do them good enough and then they'll live, then you've understood it wrongly. We've just seen over and over again, you're not righteous, don't think you're righteous, you were wicked, you were wicked from the time of, rebellious was God's word, from the time I took you out of Egypt to this day, 40 years of rebellion, 40 years of, you know, episodic, I should have destroyed you here, should have destroyed you here, should have destroyed you here, don't think that you're righteous. And so you can't read verse 1 of chapter 4, well, if they do the judgments and statutes good enough, then they'll possess the land, all right? Again, think consequence, not cause. I'm saving you and I'm giving you the, the judgments and, and the statutes that you may go in and keep them. That's why you have been called to be righteous as I'm right. That's the same purpose for us as Christians. Why did God save us? So that we would be righteous. Does that mean we earn salvation by the consequent righteousness? No. And we fall miserably short even as Israel did. But that is the purpose. You know, that's what God's telling them here. That this, these statutes, these judgments, these commandments, and I want you to notice all the different synonyms God uses here, right? Listen to the statutes, the judgments, which I am teaching you to observe, and then you shall not add to the words that I command you, uh, nor take from it, verse 2, that you may keep the commandments of your God, which I command you. And so these different words that God is giving to them, but they are God's word for life, instruction for life. It's God, uh, revelation from God. And, and the commands, you know, to, uh, to, I teach, I command. And then Israel's response in listen, observe, do not add to, do not take from. You know, very um, precise words, very simple words. This is the church under age, as it were. And so God is speaking to them, you know, and teaching them in a very commanding way. That's the way you teach young children. And that's the difference, as Paul will show in the New Testament. Israel is the people of God. They are the church of God. We shouldn't think of them any different. But they're underage. And so they're like, you know, their servants in the house are over them. And so they get this kind of teaching. If we were alive then, we would, if we believed in God, we would be getting this teaching. And that was the gospel for us. To have these commandments that would, again, teach us that we need to go to God through sacrifice because we're sinners. Because we fall short. All right, but you also get in the same thing, so information, you get the purpose so that you may go in and live. So here's the information, the law, it's good, you're supposed to be good, I know you're not, I'm gracious, that's why you're alive. My purpose doesn't change though, that you would go in and, and, and live this way, and then the encouragement to do so, verses three and four, God's former deliverances, over and over again in Deuteronomy, the encouragement is, I have been with you, I've delivered you, I know you're sinners, don't think you're earning it. Have to constantly hedge off those uh, potential errors. But three and four, your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. So these people were alive. They, they're not the children of you know, the next generations. Oh, yes, our people were there. We saw the miracles. Our fathers saw them. They saw them. For the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor. That's when they were corrupted and they took uh, wives that they were, um, were of unbelievers. God judged them and they... But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today 
every one of you. And so here's a great, again, a lesson, a, histor a historical encouragement. You've already held fast to the Lord. Keep holding on to the Lord, and you'll be blessed. God will be with you. You'll take the land. All right. Moses was faithful. Uh, in teaching them. This is another encouragement. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, verse 5, just as the Lord commanded me. I brought you the word that you should act according to them in the land which you go in to possess. <clears throat> and then verse 5, therefore what? Be careful to observe them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So two purposes that they would have, that they would, that they would keep the law, that it would be their wisdom, their understanding, and that it would be a witness to the other peoples around them. There was a, an evangelical purpose in the law, as it were. The other peoples would see something different about Israel. Nobody has laws like these. They're so wise, they're understanding. And so God's calling them to keep them for their own good and again, for the good witness that it would be to the land of the people uh, around them, all right, uh, that they would be showing themselves this way. Verses 7 and 8, for what nation is there that has a God so near to it? So the law is not something that's keeping Israel away, but it's showing his presence with them. As the Lord our God is to us, whatever reason we may call upon him, and what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you today? All right, so no other nation has these things. Only keep them. Keep yourself, verse 9. Take heed to yourself. Literally, keep your soul. Keep your soul, ma'od, exceedingly. Exceedingly keep it. Really keep it. Uh, take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life and teach them to your children and to your grandchildren. So uh, keep these things that I'm commanding you. Keep yourself really first. Keep yourself lest you forget that you saw these things. You saw my power. You don't need to just you know, believe. You saw it. Therefore remember it so that they don't leave your heart and mind so that you live by some other principle other than what you know to be real. We hold fast to faith all of our lives and we keep ourselves and our souls to the end. That's part of it here, too, that even when you have grandchildren, you know, it's not, why well, I put my time in. I don't have to do it anymore. Let the next, no, you still have to keep your soul. You still have to keep yourself. I don't care how old you get. You have to keep your soul. You have to keep yourself. You have to believe in God. You have to pursue him and follow him. doesn't matter. You can have grandchildren. You still have to do your part. It might be different now, but you still have to walk in it. Um, and you still want to call and teach them to do it. And you teach and you walk. The same kind of thing with the nations, right? You believe and you witness. And so Ephesians 6, I think, comes into play here where Paul commands fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. We saw this in Genesis 18, 19, right? That God saved Abraham for the purpose of teaching his house after him to do righteousness and justice. This is something that Christians are always called to do. It's part of our believing in God. If I believe in God, I'm going to raise my children to know the Lord, to fear him, uh, to understand him, to, and I will teach them about, the, the, or about God. That doesn't guarantee they're going to be saved. But that's my part of my believing in God, to do that. And God, you know, does use that as a means of grace many times, uh, and we see that. But we can't presume, oh, I've done my part. God has to do his. Now I'm not walking by faith anymore. I'm walking by works. And so especially remember Mount Sinai. Remember I said Sinai is like one of those climaxes that Deuteronomy is pointing back to constantly. Especially remember Mount Sinai, verse 10. Especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb. Horeb is Deuteronomy's word for Sinai. It doesn't appear outside of the book. And it's in Deuteronomy a bunch of times more, way more than the word Sinai is. So uh, when the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. So if they hear my words, two things. This will encourage them to fear me, and it certainly does that, if you remember. Let us hear no more the words of the Lord that can't bear it. 
But it will also teach them to teach their children, right? They heard the voice of God. That, I don't know if there's ever been another generation. I mean, there are people here and there, but a whole time, you know, where a whole generation hears God speak from heaven, it seems to be unique at Sinai, as far as I know. I didn't do a search on that, but I can't think of another occurrence where God speaks and the whole nation hears, right? I mean, yes, he speaks to Noah's sons, and that's the whole world at the time, but still, it's a little bit different when you have thousands of people, several million people, really, about three million Jews probably uh, coming out, uh, men, women, and children. And so they all hear. But the purpose of them hearing was not, oh, I just wanted to know what God sounded like, you know, that God's going to give you a miracle to tickle your fancy. Uh, no, it was that they would fear God and that they would teach their children, uh, that this would be a great incentive to them. And so it was, it's the most significant point in the formative history. Until they really, until they get it to the land, this is it. I mean, Sinai is where they're made into a people, a nation. They're no longer a family. They're no longer a tribe. Now they're a nation, right? And so at Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel. That was uh, in Exodus 24, where the covenant is actually used. The language is used. God makes the covenant, the blood of the covenant. Moses throws it on them with buckets, and he forms them into a nation at Sinai. By the way, you didn't need to be up front to have some of the blood on you. Those people represented everybody. Um, when he uh, did that. And so he gives them their constitution and their charter. At Sinai, they hear his voice. And at Sinai, they cry out for a mediator. That's significant. That they may uh, and uh, hear, that they may teach their children, that they, that they may learn to fear, that they may learn to teach their children. So um, again, uh, hearing God's words was the purpose of of fearing God and teaching one's children. It was for that purpose. They heard for that reason. And those who believed would make a right use of that purpose. And those who didn't believe wouldn't. All right, verses 11 to 14. Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain. So this is, this is again, the most significant event in Israel's history up to this point. And the mountain burned with fires. They remember this. And, of course, these would have been the children, and their parents are all dead. That's why they took 40 years. But they were children, they remembered. To the midst of heaven, with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness, and the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of his words, but you saw no form. You only heard a voice. So he declared to you his commandment, which he commanded you to perform, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone, and the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you the statutes and the judgments that you might observe them in the land in which you cross over to possess. So the purpose of the law is that Israel would go and live this way. It wasn't earned the land by doing the law good enough. All right, so another example of consequence. God commanded me to teach you so that this would happen. But Moses doesn't um, guarantee anyone's observing uh, merely the opportunity to do so, right? It's not, oh, it, you're guaranteed now because you heard. No, you heard, now you're, you have an incentive and a motivation, um, but are you going to make use of that, all right? So Moses, again, recalls his chastening from the Lord in verses 21 and 22. I told you this happens repeatedly. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me. Again, it's for your sakes, and he swore that I would not cross over the Jordan, that I would not enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not cross over the Jordan. But you shall cross over and possess that good land. And so over and over again, Moses reminds the people that it was because of their sins that he was not able to enter the land. Although he sinned as well, uh, it was for their sakes. He was their leader. And so he, he suffers that judgment. So any comments or questions so far? All right, last section. We have enough time, I think. So in giving them this reminder of Sinai again, the purpose is stay faithful to God. Do not turn to other gods. You're going to go to a place now where you're no longer alone. You know, think of it. The whole 40 years, they're, they're alone. They're barely running in contact with anyone else. Okay, there was the Bell of Peor episode where they did do some intermarriaging and God judged them. But for the most part, they're not interacting with other nations, 
right? They're not, okay, well, they've got the Ammonites here and, you know, not until they get ready to go into the land do they have to send out, you know, please let us pass through their land. Until then, it's, it's them and God and all the ways in which they're rebelling even there. But now they're going to face another temptation. There are nations in these, in these lands that worship other gods. And even if they obey God and destroy all of them, which they don't, they're still going to see the remains of their worship. They're still going to see you know, the luxuries that they had, the things that they put their faith in. And so there's a great incentive now at this point, after God reminds them of what happened at Sinai, reminds them again of the commands not to worship idols, especially because that's what they're going to run into first. And then reminds them, Moses does, about how even he is not going to enter the land. So, that, you know, again, the seriousness that God takes these things, that there will be consequences to their actions, even to Moses, who was God's friend. God spoke to him face to face. Even he now is going to bear some of that. But then the call of do not forget God. Stay faithful. Don't turn to these other temptations that you're going to face. So verse 23, take heed to yourselves. So this is the, right after he reminds them of his own sin, Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and you make for yourselves a carved image. That's going to be their really great temptation, to be like the world. And all the world at that time has idols. You know, each city or each nation has its own gods. That's what they're about to face. And so God reminds them, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And then we get the first recounting of Israel's future apostasy. Um, this is... The first time this happens in Deuteronomy, it happens repeatedly. And it's, you think about it. I mean, if you're getting this revelation from God, oh, by the way, when you actually get in, you're going to do this. And God's going to judge. How would that have uh, motivated you? Verse 25, when you beget children and grandchildren, and again, when you have grown old in the land and act corruptly. Not you might. This is a possibility when this happens. And you make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it. You will be utterly destroyed. As I said, you can't merit the land, but you can merit a shorter time in it. You can't merit God's blessings, but you can merit his judgments if you go into sin like this. And the Lord your God will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you and there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands and wood and stone which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. It's a judgment from God to worship false gods because you lower yourself in your humanity. You're bowing down to foolish things that you as a human know better. You're acting less than you are. And then verse 29, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him in your, if you seek him with all your heart, with all your soul. We just got all the history of Israel to the return of captivity from Babylon. Right there in those five verses. All of it would happen. A very, very brief summary. We don't get anything mentioned about the kingship or anything else and all that would happen. Uh, but we get the whole thing. They're going to do this. They do it. They're going to be scattered among the peoples. That happens. Assyria takes the ten tribes, plants them all over the place. They go to Babylon, they go to Egypt, they go all over the place. And, there, and then they serve false gods. But there you will seek the Lord, and you will find him. We know only a remnant at that point. Um, when you are in distress, and these come, think about Daniel's prayer in Babylon, in Daniel chapter 9, that God would restore. Or Nehemiah and Ezra, when they pray for God's people. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. So this first recounting of the, of the, the, the apostasy that's coming and yet God's going to keep a remnant. So the, for the, again, for those who believe, this would be distressing but encouraging. If you believe, you're going to weather this storm. For those who don't believe, this is a foretelling of the judgment that's coming. And it did come upon them. All right, so um, 32 to 38, we get Israel's unique privileges. And again, their intended effect. Ask now concerning the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth. Ask from one end of heaven to the other whether any great thing like this has happened. You see, Israel's in a privileged position. No one's ever had this before. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the fire as you have? 
and live? Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of other nations uh, by trials, signs, wonders, by a mighty hand, outstretched arm, by great terrors, according to all that you saw that God did for you in Egypt? You know, has this ever happened before? It's interesting to me because I've heard teachers say um, where, you know, well, you know, God probably approached 10 or 15 people before Abraham said yes, you know, as if it was Abraham's, you know, um, was better somehow. Uh, God, God here says, hey, this has never happened before, what I've done. You know, the unique grace that God has given to Israel. Verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know the Lord himself is God and there is no other. They should know this. The, the temptation to idolatry should be completely out of their minds. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice. Uh, that's repeated over and over again. That, that he might instruct you. On earth he showed you his great fire. You heard his words out of the fire, even as Moses when he first heard God from the bush. And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. He brought you out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power. So God was with you and his power was with you, driving them out before you. Nations, driving out before you, nations greater and mightier than you. Already done that with Og, uh, king of Bashan. And to bring you in and to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. And then the, uh, the effect of this privilege that Israel has. Unique privilege. What's the effect? Verses 39 and 40. Therefore, because you are so privileged, therefore know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and, and on earth belief and there is no other. What other people could stand up to Moses and Israel when God acted for them? You shall, again, you shall therefore keep his statutes and commandments. Because you know these things, because you heard these things, because God has done all these things. Therefore, God has been so good to you, you are to do this. You are to walk in these commandments. And even they are for your further good, that it may go well with you and with your children after you. Again, not in an earning way, but as a consequence. If you do this, this will happen. And that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. All right, so continue to know God, obey God, live before God. Then we get the three cities of refuge, which I'm not going to read, 41 to 43. That's talked about earlier, Exodus, Numbers. There were going to be these three cities of, rest, of refuge. Part of that is that this, you know, Israel doesn't have, think of it, they don't have a police force. You know, somebody commits a crime, call the police. It was the, it was the, you know, the, the, kin, uh, the, the kinship avenger, the avenger of blood. And so, in a sense, God is deputizing certain people when certain things are done that they are to go and bring justice by killing the murderer, by executing him. Uh, no doubt there would be some sort of official way to do this. This wouldn't be like cowboy justice, but, you know, he'd have to go and get the uh, murderer, bring them back to the city. The city would, you know... Uh, the judges, there were judges, uh, there were elders, governors. So they would pronounce whatever, the heads of the tribe, and then the, 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 um, uh, the avenger of blood would be able to carry out the consequence. But uh, these cities, therefore, were like, to make sure that that didn't get too out of hand, you know, that, the, that you would have to go to a city where you could be protected until the case could be established if you wanted to protest that you were innocent. And there were, if, you, if you remember the accounts, there's a couple examples where, you know, if a man lies in wait for another man, he shall be put to death. But if they're, you know, if he's working and, and, and you know, and the axe head falls off and hits him in the head and he dies and he didn't intend it, then he shall flee to one of these cities until he can be, his name can be cleared, you know, or something like that. Uh, and so there's a distinction between premeditated murder and, you know, accidental homicide uh, that happens. But that's, that's, that's state law here. This is the law, the civil law, and how it's to be enforced. That's the purpose of the cities of refuge. So God is giving Israel its constitution and how to function in that. Um, and I don't know if you think of it in those terms, but Israel is given all of its rules. You know, it's a theocracy. The law for how government will work is from God. God doesn't say this is for all peoples of all times. This is for Israel at this time. In this time of the revelation of God's salvation, right? Things change when, when uh, God uh, begins, to, uh, begins to bring the gospel to the nations and Israel is brought back into the land and the monarchy is not restored and all of that. There's obvious things that have to change. They can't do the things that they had to do when they were a monarchy or whatever um, or when they were in captivity. 
But this law, while Israel was in the land, is their law. It's their constitution. All right. And then we get the summary of Moses' instruction to Israel at the end. Verses 44 to 49. And it just reminds them. Now this is the law which Moses set before the children of Israel. Again, notice the different synonyms. This is the law. These are the testimonies, the statutes, the judgments that Moses spoke to the children of Israel after they came out of Egypt. By piling up these words, God is showing Israel the importance of them and that they're all from God. You can't, you know, oh, well, I like these ones over here. They're all from God. Moses spoke them all. Uh, on this side of the Jordan. So this, is, this all happened before they crossed the Jordan River and go to war. In the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sion, king of the Amorites, who they defeated by God's grace, who dwelt at Heshbon, whom Moses and the children of Israel defeated after they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og. Remember one of the last of the giant kings, the Rephaim, uh, king of Bashan. Two kings of the Amorites who were on this side of the Jordan toward the rising sun from the Aor, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, which is Mount Sion, that is Hermon, and all the plain on the east side of the Jordan as far as the Sea of Erebus below the slopes of Pisgah. So this is it. This is the summary of what God is saying to them and all those laws that he gave them. And then in chapter uh, 5, and I want to do a study of the Ten Commandments next time probably, uh, which will be a couple of weeks from now. Because that's what God gives them in Deuteronomy. And there's a couple of little differences in the commandments that help us to understand that the Protestant accounting of the commandments are actually the biblical one. Uh, if you're familiar with the discussion, Roman Catholics and Lutherans have one way to number the commandments. Protestants, most Protestants have another way to number them. The Jews have another way to number them. I'm going to show you, Lord willing, in three weeks. <laughs> The Protestant, by the fact that there's these shades of differences, we know what the ten are. Because here's the thing, God, gives, God says there are ten commandments, he doesn't say what they are. If you count the imperative verbs, you get like 30. That's, you can't do that. So how do we break up the commandments? Um, that's what we'll look at again in three weeks. So let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great mighty way in which you worked in Israel, Lord God. You worked in your people to believe you, reminding them of your goodness to them. Father, remind us of the goodness that you've shown us as believers that we can now enter into your worship in spirit and truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.